Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today we have Susie Savier and Michael Barnhart. They are owners and asset managers of 388 units across Oklahoma and Texas. And they host a podcast called The Adventures of a Real Estate Investor. And they've also created a monthly meetup for real estate investors living overseas and investing in the United States. So thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to provide value for your listeners. Yay. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely believe you will. And so give us a little background on yourself, both uh, personally and professionally, prior to getting involved and uh, in real estate investing. Yeah, so I'll give a brief background about myself and I'll yeah. let Susie jump in here in a second. <laughs> um, so I am active duty military. I've been in the Air Force, U.S. Air Force for 17 plus years now. Um, and I'm yeah, basically my background is in program management for the Air Force, chem biodefense systems for a while. Uh, and then I got my dream job teaching, which is teaching at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And then they want me to continue teaching, so send me to get a PhD. That's why we are in Cambridge, England right now. I'm getting a PhD in biochemistry, finishing up here this year. Really excited to be done with it. Uh, and then we will eventually make our way back to Colorado Springs where I finish out my military career and retire. So Wow. Me. Yeah. Great. Yeah, me, um, I guess right before real estate investing, I was a project manager for a biotech company here in Cambridge. But then before that life, I was in accounting. And once you get to know me, you realize that like my soul is not meant for accounting. And so I decided to get an MBA and kind of do a career change. And so that is what I did twice in the last what, two years, but that's okay. <laughs> it works out really well. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And then, so how did you guys get your, when you say you're in Cambridge, you're not in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you guys are in Cambridge, uh, UK, United Kingdom. So how did you get the the bug, let's say, and choose real estate investing as your vehicle? And, you know, what, what kind of made the change in your life that you need something else in real estate was that? Yeah, that's a great question. So for us, it all started with COVID. <laughs> and so over here, we had three lockdowns total. And the first one was a little over 100 days. But we didn't know that. But everyone was sent home from work. And so I was 
working, you know, from home, but Michael like doing wet lab research, it's not like he was bringing up back, back home a ton of bacteria. And so we're like, okay, well, what are we going to do now for this first lockdown? Cause we could only leave to go to the grocery store, the pharmacy or work out once a day. And so we decided to do a mini book club with each other. And the first book was the slight edge by Jeff Olson. Mm -hmm. And in the back of that, there was an amazing yeah recommendation like reading list and for us it was perfect because it was like cool we don't have to choose anything on our own we'll just buy a few books on here one of those was multiple streams of income by robert allen and when we michael got to the second section he was like you have to read this like we need to figure this out and like from there it led to finding bigger pockets from bigger pockets it led to finding like from military to millionaire and in that Facebook group, Michael had just posted like, hey, is anyone like living overseas but investing in real estate? And we just needed one person to say yes for, for it to like, to give ourselves permission to be like, this is what we're going to do. So that was the bug. That's how it started. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's fantastic. So tell us about your first real estate investment um, after you went through this extensive reading list. And uh, that Robert Allen book is like a, uh, a famous, I mean, I remember reading that years and years back. Because I think the original copy came out like decades ago, didn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, a, I mean, it's in this nice like 1980s style, like, <laughs> yeah, like purple and gold. It is. But yeah, I can So like actually... Our first foray into real estate investing was actually we, we were going to do single family investing first. Right? We we're going to do like the Burr strategy, like so buy undervalued homes, rehab them, and then refinance them and then rent them out. Um, that was our goal. We were just going to accumulate a bunch of these properties um, and then slowly move into multifamily, which is like a 10 a, a year goal for us. And um, anyways, we ended up getting two doors on a contract. And this one market that we did extensive research on, spent like two months like building a team in this in this market as well. Uh, and then the unthinkable happened, like an inland hurricane came through, took out like 60% of the trees in the area, and the, the, the town was like pretty devastated. It was a very, very devastating, uh, unfortunate accident, uh, a natural disaster. And anyways, come to find out like none of the contractors in the area were interested in remodeling a uh, rental property. They're more focused on rebuilding the city. And so like from that, like the financing fell out for our property. Um, and then we ended up walking away from those two doors. But anyways, it was a blessing in disguise because what en ended up happening from that, instead of panicking, Susie and I pivoted to our 10 year goal, which is multifamily. And so we just evaluated a different market, moved markets, built a team, and then just started submitting LOIs, make sure we had the right team, submitting LOIs on large apartment complexes. And from there, um, yeah, we got our first property and, yeah. uh, and then quickly accumulated several more after that. So. Yeah, but then our first one though was 88 units mm -hmm. um, just for the concept of we wanted a property manager on site like Monday through Friday, nine to five. So you just, you know, that you have to get close to like that 100 mark, but the, for the 88, it worked. And so that's how we ended up, you know, instead of going from two, instead of trying to get 10 or 50, that's how we decided like to go up a little further, just because we knew that we needed somebody there for us being so far away. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's smart. And then you're also going to get some scales of economy with that as well, because it's going to help you a lot managing it. And then also when you go to your next property, I mean, you're just, it's it's really going to see that decrease in cost uh, across everything. Um, so for both of you, tell us like, before you get into your team that you mentioned, tell us like what each of you handles um, and like what your specialties are. So now, because I'm doing real estate full time, so I left my um, job that I felt like I needed to get an MBA for <laughs> in August of 2021. Yeah. So now I'm doing a lot of the broker relations, investor relations, asset management, because um, Michael and I are the lead sponsors from afar. And now Michael has is doing the lovely role of underwriting because Although I was in accounting, the underwriting is just not that thrilling for me yet. <laughs> so it's kind of how we split it. But at the beginning, Michael was doing underwriting broker relations. I was doing a lot of investor relations. But now that I've moved full time, I've just taken more of that so that he can focus. Well, one, on his final year of school, but two, just because it's fun. And now I now doing it all is wonderful. <laughs> So what is your uh, current like investment criteria and strategy? What, what are you, what kind of properties you're looking at and, and kind of what's your goal with them as you're looking at them, underwriting them and uh, ultimately purchasing them? Yeah. So um, what we're looking at right now is really stabilized assets. We like stabilized assets where we can, um, we can get long-term financing on it, especially with in fixed rate financing, especially with the rising interest rates we're experiencing currently. Um, so we're looking at, you know, C plus, B minus, or B. We've even dabbled a little bit into like A properties as well. It, you know, this all depends if the deal works or not. Um, but stabilized assets, meaning 90% occupied for at least 90 days. Uh, we like that. And um, we like light value add um, and or like four plus, uh, if you're familiar with that term as well. Um, and that's kind of what we really target like 70, like late 70s and above asset uh, assets as well, vintage and in B and C areas as well. Yeah, like one thing that we noticed, sorry, right away, just because of like COVID when we were on a lot of our runs, like the laundromats were either closed or you saw like an X on every other like washer and dryer. And we were like, that's a bummer. You know, like if I had to, if I went to a laundromat and found out that half of them were closed and I had to like sit and wait, like what a bummer would that be? Right. Cause I've only ever rented. And so I like felt it from that side. And so like, we also really try to see if we can add in unit washer and dryer connections and then washer and dryers, just cause that amenity is loved by majority of the people that we chat with. Right. Mm -hmm. Or the residents, like they don't necessarily want like new paint on the walls or backsplash if like if they can have a washer and dryer they will choose that mm -hmm. over a lot of other amenities or, or what like a, a regular renovation can give michael uh you mentioned uh, two terms uh light value adding core plus can you explain what those are for our listeners yeah so i mean i mean the, the core plus and light value add isn't really there's not really delineation between the two it's a gray area right but uh core core plus so um core core is like where you're just doing light turns every single time you're turning like there's no major rehab that's that's required when you turn the units basically you know when you turn a unit in a core property you just clean the clean the carpet maybe touch up flooring here, here and there uh maybe paint paint the walls very very light um 
of renovation is needed in order to turn, like when you get into the more value add, you're thinking of like when you turn the unit, uh, when somebody moves out, like you're replacing the carpet, you know, painting full paint, you're, you're replacing countertops, resurfacing bathtubs, or even me redoing the bathtubs. Like, right? So like that would be, you know, maybe core plus or maybe five to a thousand dollars turn per unit. I'm just arbitrarily throwing numbers out there, but this is how I kind of see it. But like, and then like maybe a light value add, maybe like two, two, two and a half, you know, $2,500 getting into the heavier value add. Like when you're remodeling, gutting an entire product, that'd be a heavy value add uh, for those units. And you're putting like 10 to $15,000 in per unit. So you're getting better financing, longer term financing, fixed rate financing, because these properties are in better shape and you're pretty much going in there uh, doing minor things to increase, uh, you know, just increase efficiency, increase uh, the value by increasing rents, um, but also uh, decreasing a lot of probably expenses that you have there that a lot of apartment complexes have that are just not needed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, I see, as I understand exactly what your business model is, that's great. Um, and that makes sense because it's, it's a lot easier to do that. And you're going to have a lot more consistent cash flow for your investors with that model. So um, that's, that's great. Um, Susie, I want to think you like you utilize, I, I believe it's probably you that you're working more on this because you're utilizing, as I've understood, both of you are virtual real estate events to build your network. And you start doing this. And can you explain how you how you started them? Because this is something interesting. This is like your uh, thought leadership, I guess you would say. Um, but it's I, I haven't seen it really done virtually in meetups before. So how are you, you know, how'd you start it and how are you effectively marketing it and ultimately building them up so that you can utilize them as potential, you know, active partners or passive uh, investors? Yeah. So at the like very beginning of like all of COVID, right? Like so many people just took their meetups and conferences virtually. It's like how Michael and I utilized that at the beginning was that we were probably attending, you know, like eight meetups a week. We went to like 10 to 15 conferences in 2020. And what we did was actually, because majority of it was in Zoom or somebody had made like a spreadsheet where you could like have your name, your email address, LinkedIn, what whatnot. And we would snip the screen and just actually follow up with people, right. And be like, Hey, we didn't get a chance to chat at the meetup or at the conference. Like I'd love to get to know more about you. And because of that, like a lot of people didn't respond, but a lot of people did, <laughs> which is perfect. But that's just how we slowly like gained people's trust. Right. Cause at the beginning with Michael and I, it was like, wait a second, like you're in a different country, like, are you real? You know, like, will you actually show up again? And so because of the consistency and because of like reaching out and then creating content on top of that, like we remained top of mind for individuals. And even what do I mean by that, right? Like, why is it important to stay top of mind? Well, when Michael and I started telling people like, hey, we're in Tulsa, we're gonna be in Tulsa, that's where we're going to start investing, like somebody who had seen us in a lot of meetups and conferences and knew, right, that we were people who were going to stick around, had said like, hey, I have a connection in Tulsa and I think you'd really benefit from this. And that connection, like that individual ended up becoming like an organic mentor for us. And that was huge, right? But then now a lot of like meetups and conferences have gone back to in-person. So like us keeping the virtual and from over here, just 
just from a military side, right? So active duty and as a military spouse, like giving other people like the hope that they can do it from anywhere is huge because you can like with the right systems and processes in place and just being consistent with showing up. So like if nobody in your pact, right? Like where you live is entrepreneurial. Cause like even over here, like our friends group in Cambridge, um, when like initially when I had said that I was leaving my job, they're like, Oh, like, are you looking for something else? We're like, no, we started business. They're like, so you're, do you need any recommendations on a job? I'm like, no, <laughs> this is really, you know, like, so it's just a different mindset and that's totally okay. But staying virtual and just being there for other people, especially when people were there for us was like the biggest part of why we keep doing it and like why it's helped us like even within our marketing, because I want people to know that you can do it from anywhere. And like, that's the message that we want to give mm-hmm. because you huh. hear people who even have families, right. Who say like, Oh, I wish I could do this for a month with my family. And it's like, no, you can like, this is real no matter where you are. So that kind of brings us into my next questions, which I kind of asking because uh, I've lived abroad while doing real estate still here uh, in the United States. And uh, prior to COVID, my wife and I used to spend uh, several weeks, if uh, uh, maybe like two or three months a year, almost uh, two months a year outside of the US um, while still running real estate back in the United States and stuff like that. So tell us how you manage your US business while living, traveling abroad. And I mean, with everything that goes with it, between time zones and between, you know, internet and over like the whole nine yards of everything that people probably aren't thinking about when you're living in another country. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that's helped us manage everything from afar is just uh, leveraging a project management, project management software tool. So we use Asana. It's like mm-hmm. monday.com and Trello and everything like that. It's, it's very similar to Asana, but Asana, we have all of uh, our general partners on that. Um, we also have our, well, we obviously we asset managed through that. So we, we do our acquisitions through Asana, but then we transition asset management through Asana as well. And so we have all of our properties plugged in there with all the onsite managers, all the regional managers and the CEO of the, of the property management company all plugged in there and the CFO and everything like that. So everybody knows exactly what's going on with the property. Um, and then what the great thing is too, is like, they can upload bids directly there. You know, you created a, a task, you know, getting the roofs replaced, right? And you upload the bids on there. So, okay, I, we approved this bid. And so you, you keep a track record of everything, but then it's not like emails where you're going back and forth and you're trying to find that email. Okay, who sent the other bid about the roof, you know, or who sent that bid or which bid did they approve? Things like that. Everything just handled directly through Asana and it's lovely. Um, and then, yeah. It so, is. Yeah. <laughs> And then, so with that, we also track, you know, KPIs digitally as well. Yeah. Um, and what else, what else do we use? We use, I mean, obviously use Calendly to set up all of our meetings and, and, and Zoom and stuff like that. All the tech stuff, we just really leverage all that. Uh, but Asana is probably the biggest thing for us. Yeah, and so. I think the biggest thing is to remember that, like, if an emergency arises, like, while we're sleeping, right, like, if something were to happen at the end of the day, um, like that emergency would have to be taken care of immediately, regardless of where we lived. You know, like if there's a huge plumbing issue, I'm not going to be like, no, like let's wait till tomorrow. Right. Like that would never (laughs) happen. So they know that like doing that is more than okay. But I think it also is like having those conversations at the very beginning of like, 
this is how we want to treat the residents. This is how we want our community to like be. We want the residents to know that like they are very important. So if they have a problem, it's going to have to get fixed. So, you know, like some problems, literal smaller problems can wait, you know, like if somebody has like a, I don't know, a missing board in their fence, like that is not as important as somebody whose electrical panel doesn't work anymore. You know what I mean? So it's, but to having that conversation with your property manager is super important too, because then they know what, like, we would probably say yes to and what we would say no to so that they can make those decisions if they have to be made like that. Or we also have the conversation of like, most things can wait till the next day and that's okay both ways. So, right. Yeah. It depends. I mean, obviously you have that flexibility, you have that flexibility um, of, uh, them knowing a specific amount that you're going to, you know, Hey, you can do whatever you want up to this, uh, you know, this amount. And then it's like, um, Hey, you know, if there's a hot water heater that's leaking, obviously replace it. You don't have to call me. You know what I mean? Call me afterwards or let me know in my like weekly report or whatever it is, what, what got done, but it's not something that's like a major thing that needs to be taken care of or someone's AC is not working or something like this. I mean, that has to be done. Obviously if you're replacing the whole, you know, that's something you want to talk to me about. Um, or if we're taking bids for large capex, like you said, uh, Michael, roofs and stuff, you know, that's definitely a great way of doing it through Asana. But, you know, it's it's everybody. And I think as you get more comfortable with your property managers, you're going to start raising that that limit a little bit um, and have them take care of more things. So something that might have started around 500, you know what I mean? As an arbitrary number, that might be at 1,000, you know what I mean? And it might be at 1,500 where people are just like, listen, this had to be done. I did this. You know, this is, the, rep-, you know what I mean? And then you kind of have that, um, you have people taking stuff off your plate and making decisions that's going to keep uh, the property in good shape and then keep your tenants happy as well, which are both very, very important. No, totally. And even at the very beginning, we found out that although our property manager is, you know, at the property all the time, that does not mean he or she, even the maintenance guys, right? Or our regional knows what a syndication is. And so like even explaining that, like, this is why we have to do these things because it's not Michael and I that have millions of dollars for this down payment. Like, let me explain the entire process to you so that you understand where it's all coming from and how it even works. Mm -hmm. And that definitely triggered, triggered a few light bulbs. Like, Oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, I'm glad we had this conversation today. (laughs) Uh, So so tell us about your team that you have back in the United States and then how often you're physically back in the United States for properties. Yeah. So so we, we have quite a few team members now. They're kind of located in or around the area. Obviously we, we know, I mean, now that our team has grown so much since we've moved into the area, as far as like, well, obviously we have one property management team that we all, she and her team like run all of our properties now, uh, which is awesome. Obviously we have a team of vendors that we trust, know like and trust now um, to, to look at properties for us and things like that, go out and get bids and stuff like that. Um, but then we also have like syndication partners that are also in the area. Um, because Susie's now full-time and COVID restrictions have been lifted uh, for the majority uh all over here. Over over here, yeah. Um, she's been traveling back once a month, roughly. Yeah. Um, it was going to quarterly, and it's kind of picked up now, and, and it's because we have more and more going on. So, yeah, about once a month, we travel. Well, at least Susie travels back. Oh, 
Oh, so. nice. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, if you have the team on the ground, I mean, it takes care of a lot of issues because especially uh, you have people that are, you know, reviewing different parts of the pro- properties um, and they're reviewing potential uh, acquisitions. I think the, the hardest part is just getting your first acquisition. And then after that, your team members are going to take you a lot more seriously and spend more time with you. And then um, I think that's when it really starts rolling because now you've proven yourself to these vendors that probably get emails and calls throughout the week from new potential investors that never pull the trigger. Yeah. So once you've done that, now you're on a whole nother level, a whole nother spreadsheet, let's say, of, uh, hey, who am this person, I'm going to actually review financials when they're buying their you know, seventh property or whatever um, and help them you know, close this because they're going to put this management with us, which is an awesome place to... Uh, to be in. Yeah. And it's even just like with the vendors and whatnot, like just treating them like people, right. Instead of just workers also like that makes a huge difference. Cause I was there like in Tulsa, most of October and most of February. And when I mean most, I literally mean almost every single day of the month. And so like they, we really got to like know each other. So now I can call them and I feel much more comfortable like calling them and talking about something, you know, like even one of our contractors the other day called me and he's like, are you mad at me? I'm like, you're, you're going to know when I'm mad. I'm not mad. <laughs> yeah. And so like, it's cool that we've even gotten to a place where he feels comfortable enough to even ask if I'm mad. I'm like, no, you didn't text me back. I'm not mad at you. I thought you were mad at me. <laughs> you know, just like little stuff like that. And so it's cool when you can like create just those deeper relationships. Cause then you know, like our goal is not to always just have one property forever. It's to like improve every property along the journey. And so when you can include some of the same vendors for all of them, it's awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's where you're going to, another thing that helps with your scales of economy too. So you're going to get a, uh, you know, you're going to get a decrease in costs for everything that you do and everything that moves forward. And then you're going to have a much tighter um, ideas when you're um, evaluating new properties, when you're doing out your performance of what stuff's going to cost because you're doing it so often and you have that relationship with the vendor. So if something goes up in price, they might work with you on it. If your numbers were off from, which is where we are now with all inflation happening and stuff going up every month. Mm -hmm. But um, with you guys reviewing so many properties, buying so many properties, working with passive investors, working with GP partners, vendors, and what are some common mistakes you see real estate investors make, um, whether you've seen them firsthand or whether people have sent you, um, you know, sent you uh, any kind of underwriting or deals are looking at, what, what do you think are uh, mistakes you're seeing, not just from new investors, but also maybe experienced investors to it, where we are now in the cycle? I was going to say not asking like clarifying questions, hmm. right? Yeah, so that's, that's a good one. Yeah. It, I mean, like getting down to like the hard part of the conversation. And I don't want to, like, I think a lot of people assume that when somebody asks a question, it's like, oh, well, they don't trust it or they don't understand it. It's like, well, no, they don't understand it, right? Like a commute, a confused mind says no. And yes. we don't want to say no over and over and over, but asking clarifying questions can seem difficult to do, but that's really where you get to the core of somebody's underwriting or you get to the core of like why somebody actually wants to invest in real estate investing or how much money they think they can like raise for capital or why they decided to go with, you know, that lender with a variable rate, all of the above, because like, if we don't know people's motivations, like active or passive for real estate investing, we actually don't know how a deal will go. 
you know, or we don't know how somebody will react when it comes to like how a GP team works, right? Because as a passive investor, if I really need the money, like, because I want to build something faster than what the deal could do, like, that's when uh, somebody could say like, oh, I don't know if this is a deal for you, right? Like, we're looking for five to seven years, not three to five years when you think you would want the return back. But like, if you don't actually ask right clarifying questions or deeper questions, you never get to know those answers. And those are huge because it just changes the vibe <laughs> of the deal, no matter what side you're on. What about yeah. you? What do you think? <laughs> I was thinking of it more from an underwriting perspective. Okay. Like, um, I see people not bringing enough capex, and then they get mm. in trouble, um, and then have their capital calls early. Um, we also, don't want that. Also, see people <laughs> being very, very aggressive in year mm. one. Um, you know, over five percent increase in uh, uh, rental collections, yeah. um, which is you know, it takes like three or four months to to get your feet under their property when you move in there. And then you have another, you know, eight months to try to like push those rents to get a significant increase. So like I usually underwrite something less than 5% in year one and then around 10% in year two. Um, and then obviously with inflation, a lot of people are being very aggressive with uh, rental increases. Um, so, you know, 5% plus, which I think uh, is very significant. And then you look at their exit price and you're like, and you expect to get, you know, you bought it, just say, hypothetically, you bought it for 100K a door and you expect to exit for 200K a door in, uh, in five years when it's just a, you know, core plus or, or a light value add deal. Yeah. You might want to rethink that, right? So Yeah. The other thing too is that people put those rent, they're taking historic rent appreciation from, you know, when I say historic could be, you know, 12, 24, 36 months ago. And they're saying, oh, that's going to repeat itself. And people should be more aggressive on your insurance going up versus, you know what I mean? And your taxes yeah. going up versus, um, hey, rent's just going to keep on going up at this, you know, phenomenal rate. And the other thing too, is during any type of light value, any type of value at all, you're going to be, you know, like you said, I love how you said too, it's like three to four months. And I usually call it like the first six months. It's like initial stabilization. I don't even know what's going on in the property, to be honest. I mean, you have, you have ideas of what's happening. You have, a, you have an idea of who's paying and you have an idea here and there, but you really don't know until you actually get in there and all your vendors have been switched over. You got rid of all the old vendors. Your new management is like comfortable with everything. You know exactly what units are vacant, which ones aren't. And you're just reading off this rent roll and you're hoping it's like still accurate. And you're kind of like calling people that aren't there and all this kind of stuff. And, but the thing too, is that, um, so I love that about that, but it's like, you're also kind of shaking it up a little bit and you're going to have whatever the vacancy is, is going to increase. And you're going to have, you know, while you're doing these, there's going to be longer than what the person was doing before. You know what I mean? It might take you three weeks for a unit versus one week. You know what I mean? When they were doing it before, because you're going to, you're doing more work to the unit. Hopefully it's less than that, but you know what I mean? So it's like, these are things that people don't, I see going on your point of what people don't factor into their underwriting when I look at it. Absolutely. Yeah, and when you, and we've, we've found this out as well as like, when you take over a new property, uh, a lot of the residents will push back and see what they can get away with, right? So they'll just like, yep. how long can I go without paying now, right? And uh, and then we're like, you know, oh, maybe I'll just pay a little bit here, pay a little bit here. Or, yeah, like Drag the old my... manager used to let me do this. Yeah, mm. exactly. So like, there's a lot of those issues you have to work through, right? It might take a, you know, like you said, six months. Yeah, we don't even start distributions for our properties until we're after, through an entire six months of operations, yep. just because we don't know what's going to happen, right? So. Yeah.
it's smart it's smart it's the most uh, it's the most conservative way of doing it and you know the worst thing ever is going back to your investors but uh when you have that whatever it is five six months that you're uh that you own it before you're doing distributions it gives you an idea of figuring out exactly 100 percent what's happening at the property prior to start paying money out and they're actually returns that you're you know distributing not just money that you know investors gave you earlier on. So um, but that's awesome. That's that's fantastic. So what are some of the main factors that have contributed to your success? I mean, and you guys have been doing this for a handful of years. So like, what have you seen in growing so fast and growing teams so fast, especially from being, you know, five time zones from the United States? Yeah, I think um, for us, it's just a lot of people take in a lot of information. There's, there's so much information out there, right? Like it is scary to you know, spend tens of millions of dollars on apartment complexes. And then like, and especially raising millions of dollars for investors, right? Like make sure that you're properly educated enough to the point where you can start taking action. And once you can start taking action, take action and make decisions, right? And take action, make decisions, take actions. A lot of people will get decision fatigue and then they just like, uh, they don't know what to do. And then they have, you know, uh, analysis paralysis and things like that. Like for us, it's just like, okay, if I didn't know something, I'm going to read about it and then I'm going to make a decision. Right. And then next time it's just easier and quicker. Um, so we just continue to take action. I think is the biggest thing for, for us. Um, so. I was going to say another thing that really like helped, and this is more just like after our very first deal, because we didn't know how it would go and people don't really talk about that during meetups. And so like we went through, every single email and created an entire checklist like okay Ooh, smart this, yeah this is what it was like before we submitted an LOI all the way through you know closing even mm -hmm. for a couple of weeks just so that going into the next one it wasn't like a oh my gosh let me look back at the emails now to see what I can remember it's like okay these are all the things that happened granted right like we might use a local bank instead of agency debt but financing is still there, right? Like you can still kind of figure it out. And it just, even when Michael was talking about decision fatigue, like it kind of takes a little bit of that away because it's there and you can either, you know, allocate it to somebody else or just get it done super quickly. Cause you're like, Oh, okay. I know what to send this time. Like I know what is needed this time. Yeah. Yeah. Having that processes checklist and like it starts you off as systems, uh, you've documented what you're doing and now, you know, going back to it, this is what I did. And I should have, you know, this should be moved up here and mm -hmm. this should be, but then it's after a few properties, after a few things with anything, you know what I mean? Then you're, you're, you're kind of moving, you're moving yeah. smoothly. Um, exactly. So um, how can our listeners learn more about you and, uh, and your guys' businesses? Yeah. So I think um, best way to find us is just go to our website, adventurousrei.com. And you can find out more about us on there. But one thing we really didn't get to talk about too much on here. It's just um, the impact that we leave with our residents. That's that's our main focus, right? And we've Susie and I focus on what we call our own ROI. It's a different ROI. It's a return on impact. Um, and so, like Susie kind of mentioned a little bit about like looking, for, you know, maybe adding those in-unit washer and dryers really make that experience for that resident even better, right? And so that's what we always look at when we're underwriting, looking at different properties, make sure that we can develop a business plan that has the largest impact on the resident base. Um, and so if you wanna learn more about like what returnal impact is, you can go to adventurousrei.com forward slash impact. And there's like a little um, little guide thing that we talk about return impact and, and how we use that and leverage that in our business. So that's the best way to find us. Obviously, obviously we're on LinkedIn, Michael Barnhart and Susie Sevier as well. We're very active on there. You can find us and connect with us on there. 
Awesome. And the links for your podcast are well as on your website as well, because I was checking out yesterday. So a lot of great information there for anybody that's interested in uh, following your footsteps of uh, buying apartment complex, whether it's being based in the United States or being based abroad. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for you guys coming on and uh, looking forward to connecting with you uh, in the near future. Yeah, Absolutely. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Charles. It's such a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.